0: to Eurochron, a podcast about a wide variety of topics, including people, restaurants, travel, or wherever we can find a good story, and in some cases, maybe even create one. So let's get
1: right to our next story.
0: Hi, this is your your Cron host, Scott Pitney, with another travel podcast. This time it's London, England. Went there to celebrate my birthday this year. My wife LeBon was kind enough to make this a gift for me by arranging all the great things that we did. We caught a portion of this in a podcast. This is basically two tour guides. The first tour guide is going to cover Stonehenge, our visit to Stonehenge, as well as a city called Bath england an interesting little place that we stopped along our tour that day and then the second tour guide is going to cover our adventures along the thames river took a lot of photographs of course so i will post those with the podcast hopefully you can kind of connect the the audio with some of the pictures do apologize because it was a tour the sound quality is not as best recorded it with my iPhone basically but I think the content will certainly be there and uh, be of interest to someone especially someone that is interested in possibly going to London or if you don't plan on going to London there's a lot of interesting history in this podcast as well so enjoy our London travel podcast
1: This is our tour guide about Stonehenge. The
2: time period and how it was, you know, the periods and what was done throughout its construction, or the phases of construction, that's a better way of putting it, and then the theories, of which there are multiple, but I want to focus on a couple that have actually been credible throughout the history. So, first and foremost, the, the monument itself dates back to 3000 BC, 3000 BC, it is in the new stone age and f- f- to begin with i would also like you to to try when you're there because i appreciate in today's time with the things that we've been able to build stonehenge it's small relative and sometimes people think you know oh, why would they build this or who would have built it and it must have been aliens i will mention them because they get too much credit by the way i'll talk about aliens later A lot of people just tried to rationalise how this would have come to be. Why on earth would they build this thing? But in that time period, or in that generation, that stone age, time was very different to what we have now. Everybody's in a rush today. Then they had all the time in the world. If you told someone that they were going to sit there for the next six months gradually chipping away a piece of stone until it looked perfect. Yeah, okay, no problem. Why not? Now? (laughs) Good luck. The transition, by the way, from us not having any time to having lots of time happens at about 4000 BC, because before that, the people on this island are hunter-gatherers. They are chasing food. Farming communities, however, were moving across Europe and got here on this island 4000 BC. It's when the farming techniques arrived that we are now able to settle down We can grow crops, rear animals, and we have this abundance of free time. And that is the time you start to see stone circles and monuments appearing up and down the island. Stonehenge is not the oldest and it is not the biggest, but it is the most elaborate in how it is constructed. The very first phase of development, 3000 BC. And what we get in 3000 BC is a large circular ditch dug on the Salisbury Plain. Salisbury Plain, the landscape we are coming into, is made up of chalk. To break the chalk, they used deer antlers, which were acted as a pick, and they used a shoulder blade of cattle, which was like a shovel, to scoop everything up. Everything that came out the ditch was placed in a bank. So they have a ditch and a bank, and the bones are left behind, which could be radiocarbon dated, giving us the 3000 BC date. The ditch and the bank, by the way, the collective name for that is a hench that earthwork is a henge, So it is not Stonehenge in its first incarnation. When it's set up, it is not Stonehenge, it is simply a henge. We don't get stones at the monument until phase two, which happens about a hundred years after. It's hard to pinpoint precisely, but around a hundred years after. This is when we get the smaller of the two varieties of stones at the monument. They are called blue stone, blue because of their blue doramite buildup. They're not blue when you see them today but technically if you cracked one open or if you were to polish one it does have a more green tint than anything else but that's the name of the stone they are between three and a half and six and a half feet tall and they weigh from 1.5 up to about four tons 1.5 tons is is a light car a small car and four tons is fairly substantial they're not huge but they have traveled an awful long way to get Because they originate in Pembrokeshire, Wales. It's a whole other country today. That is about 140 miles away as the crow flies directly west. It's a very long journey that they've made. Now, when those stones are brought down to the monument, they are said to have been laid out in a circle. So you had a ditch, you had a bank, and then you had a ring of blue stone. That was our second phase, and it was between 2,900 and 2,700 B.C. The third and final phase of Stonehenge's construction is what gives it its appearance today albeit today we have a ruin it's not complete or partial ruin it's not complete but the layout that we have is from this third phase it is when the sarsen stones arrive at the site the sarsen stones are local stone they come from 15 miles north of Stonehenge and they are the famous ones that you would know of if you try to picture Stonehenge, if you've seen Stonehenge, if you've been to Stonehenge, the ones that would jump out to you as Stonehenge stones, the stones of Stonehenge, are the sarsens. And they may be local, but they are, they're big. They're big. Um, I'll give you an idea. This bus that we are on is about 40, maybe 42 feet long. And it weighs 17.5 tons. The biggest of the sarsens at the monument is about 37 feet tall although you'll be looking at 30 foot above ground level and is weighing over 30 tons it is double the weight of this bus and it's not far off the same length it might only be 15 miles but i wouldn't want to drag this 15 meters or 15 feet let alone 15 miles regardless of how many people are involved and by the way just for any alien conspiracy on board there have been tests put in place there have been the methods that they believed were available, they have reproduced, and their estimation is that 200 people would have taken rotations or turns dragging them big stones across and it would have taken about a month to get the, the 30-ton stone, the 15-mile distance. When those stones arrive at the monument, things are repositioned, the ring of blue stones are picked up from their blue stone, their, their ring, and they are laid out in two different arrangements. From, its, from the centre, working our way outwards, this is how Stonehenge is laid out. A crescent of bluestone in the centre. Around the crescent of bluestone is a crescent of sarsen, the bigger stones. That sarsen crescent is made up of five trilithons. And a trilithon is three stone structure. So it's two uprights with a horizontal stone that rests on top. Those horizontals are known as lintels. There are five of those in a crescent shape around which you then have the remaining blue stones in a circle and you then have a ring again of sarsen stones once more capped with the lintels you then have your bank you then have your ditch and that was stonehenge there are a few other stones dotted around the monument but that's the main bulk of how it it is laid out the third and final phase i think i don't know if i mentioned it but it's between 2600 bc and about 2400 bc There has been plenty of experiments, again, on how to get stones to stand upright, you know, digging a hole and having a fulcrum, a pivot stone and loading the end of the stone and wait so it tips in and then you can hoist it upright. They have done many different reproductions of how a stone could be positioned and how you could get stones on top, probably, most likely, is ramps, heavy padded soil ramps that would be used to slide the stones into position. Once the stones were up in their correct spot, They collapsed the ramp down, and then there's just a mystery as to how it got 30 feet off ground level. And um, that is likely to be the most plausible because that's how the pyramids were done. And they left evidence to say so. We don't have that evidence, but it's believed it would have been possible. So there are different theories as to how the stones were put together, but all of them confirm that it could have been done. Well, it's there, and I don't think aliens built it. So I don't need anyone to confirm that it could have been done. The thing's there to see. But if you're an easily believer, we've te- checked, mankind, womankind can do humankind can do it. Now, oh, the little details that make Stonehenge different from all the other stone circles on our island and elsewhere. Carpentry techniques, that is the main thing. First off, when you're looking at Stonehenge, bear in mind that it has been here for 5,000 years in part, three and a half, 4,500 years basically. Um, almost as a completed monument, it has weathered. weathered. It is not as it would have been. So all the stones might look rough, but it is said that when they were first there, they were all smoothed perfectly and they were shaped. It's just that over thousands of years they have deteriorated somewhat and a lot of abuse. So the stones had been shaped, they had all been smoothed, and they used these carpentry techniques locking stones together. So on each vertical, you have a tenon, which is a protruding bit and on each horizontal there is a corresponding hollow known as a mortise and it slots onto the tenon keeping it locked into place kind of like how two pieces of lego would snap together that is how stonehenge snaps but doesn't snap together but it slots on top conveniently each horizontal stone also has a dovetail joint so easiest way is well the dovetail but if you don't know i suppose think of like an end of a puzzle piece that has a corresponding slot to slide into each of the horizontal, those littles are also connected in that way, and it's these little details that set Stonehenge apart. So, we have done plenty of testing. It can be done. Extensive work has gone into prove or, or show when it was built, time periods, etc., methods. But theories are where we kind of come unstuck, or we get stuck because nobody knows. I have varied scholars around the world who have forgotten opinion, and no one can be certain what Stonehenge was used for. But I'm going to go through the theories that have stood the test of time as somewhat you know, plausible, and what I personally think from the research that I know. First and foremost, there is one stone that stands outside of the stone circle, and it's known as the heel stone, like the heel of your foot, heel stone. It is important in its role, and the summer and winter solstice alignments. So on the 21st of June, we have midsummer solstice. The sun comes up, and I'm sure many of you know, makes its appearance down as a beam through the center of Stonehenge before it gets through the central stonehenge it comes up and touches the right hand side of the hillstone that hillstone is the alignment marker practically that lines up with the center of stonehenge due to that alignment people have said that stonehenge is built and would have been built and used as a solar worship site the place to worship the sun it's true to some degree that those that built stonehenge worship the sun in, in my opinion might be a of a stretch to say that they spent six, 700 years building Stonehenge to do that seems quite a long time um, and while they might have worshipped the Sun to some degree without context is is a bit too simplistic for me and I'll give you an example of where without context we could be misled in the exact same path a church any church anywhere in the world doesn't matter where you are If they are architecturally correct, you would walk through the main door, you would walk up the nave, and you would get to the altar. When you are at the altar, you are facing east. That's how every church in the world is built. It would be inaccurate to stumble across a church without the context of what a church is used for, and say, oh, the sun pops up at the end of this building every morning. They must have built this to worship the sun. That's what a church would look like if you didn't have the context so uh, that throws me off when this whole stonehenge is built purely to worship the sun aspect there are lots of connections and i understand lots of why we get to that point of the church's construction but context free churches could look like that you go there to worship the sun but that is not what you go there for and i feel the same for stonehenge there is also the converse by the way some have suggested that this is a lunar worship site a place where you can worship the moon or at least follow the moon's movements and help you on this astrological timepiece almost. There, there is really very limited evidence to back this up and it has kind of lingered around, but in essence, there was a man named John Aubrey who in the 1700s discovered 56 burial pits. They're now known as the Aubrey Holes. Somebody somewhere had come up with the idea that. 56 divided by 2 is 28. And there are 28 days in a lunar cycle. So it must have been there to follow the moon's movements. And I said, well, okay, that's great. Cool. And if you times it by 9, what does that mean? There are 56 holes. There are not 28 holes. This is just a big assumption that it should have been divided. And I don't like when we go down these roads of just guesswork. It's better when you have something to back it up. And the theory that I think, is is most likely, although it could be one of the most boring. But you know, I can't help but I like that it's just an ancestral burial ground? How do I say just. It's a significant place to have you join the ancestors. A place that you would want to. The ancestors are buried there. You aspire to be buried alongside your ancestors, or the elite of those tribal leaders at the time and it makes sense because all around the world wherever you find these monuments there are burials all of them stonehenge is no different to to avery to the Roll rights to all these different stone circles we have around the country they all have burials on site and to add to that stonehenge no one lived there no one lived there it's a very sizable plot, and no one lived there Right? No matter how much digging has gone on, all they can find is the dead. However, we are now driving through a place called Durrington Walls. Off to the left-hand side, just above the brow of this hill here, is where we have something known as Woodhenge. Discovered in 1925, the area that we are passing through is today called Durrington Walls. All of this landscape was discovered to hold clues to what may have been a settlement. Discovered in 1925 if you look over to the left actually you see a bank you see there's a house in the trees And it's gonna kind of fade behind a a brow. That's a man-made bank and on the right-hand side. There's another half of it You see the other bar on the right We are driving through a man-made enclosure of what was we're about to exit now You see the little rampart and then it disappears out Darrington Malls Would have housed about 5,000 people population of the whole island was about 120,000 5,000 is substantial and here, they find lots of evidence that people lived. They find thousands of people, more than just survival. We're talking about feasting, big rituals, celebrations. On top of that, that's from the Stone Age itself, it's believed. On top of that, they find pottery pieces from the Bronze Age, which is the next age after. Again, multiple. So there's definitely evidence that people lived here. And it is connected to Stonehenge via a processional routes. The wood circle, the wood henge, by the way, is the same as stonehenge but smaller and made from wood, is also on the alignment. But there is a theory about the wood and the stone, and that is that the wood is at the place of those that are living, where they lived, because it is a reminder that life is temporary. Wood is a perishable good. It grows, it dies, it rots. We will not be here forever, and neither shall we. We too will pass. Stone, however, is eternal. Yeah, sorry to gloom you, man. You've got lots of life left. You don't worry, I see Stone is eternal. Stone will be there forever. And when you join the ancestors at the monument built from stone, you too shall be in that afterlife forever. And if you try to imagine, what could you convince? Like you, since you smile. What could I convince? How are you, 23? Yeah, I'm back, I'm far off. A 22-year-old to spend the next 20 years of his life to build in stone. So there's not much stuff you could get a young generation behind if there wasn't some reward for them themselves afterwards. I find it difficult to say, yeah, 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 I suppose, money, some kind of platform to, yeah, I suppose so. But what would be traded then? Difficult. Back then you needed to trade, I'll give you a goat, you give me some, yeah, I suppose so. I yeah, could've, it could've, you're right. Yeah, some incentive there could have been some other incentives I, I think of it as that if it was simply a church as, as is kind of the idea or a place of worship for the Sun or an instrument as some has been suggested or um, a platform for the chiefdom to speak first off it took a hell of a long time to construct secondly it just seems unlikely that you could really keep the enthusiasm running for 600 years. But if a young person who may have had a life expectancy of 35 back then, 40 maybe, believed that he was building something, she was building something, that they were going to join the ancestor and reap the reward of their efforts thereafter, I think it's an easier an easier sell. That's what I think of. The By the way, we are going through Larkhill Barracks all military stuff a guy in the arms and services on the right hand side you might see some more um all this on the right hand side these are all dormitories for like your barracks we are in the salisbury plane or on the salisbury plane should i say the salisbury plane is the largest military training ground in england it's huge and there are helicopters that fly overhead the chinooks the twin propelled ones they come quite low down not much a military person but even i get excited when i see that Um, You have the dolphins and the Apaches, you have tanks, you have military vehicles all over the place. If you see any of that, it's perfectly normal. It's unlikely we're going to see a large amount of activity, but it does happen. And at Stonehenge, you could see helicopters fly over and you might even hear the thumps in the background because there is a shooting range not that far on the right. I'd say about five miles. But such a noise does it make that you can still hear it from Stonehenge. Um, So cannons, tanks, all that stuff shooting. Perfectly fine, just so you know nothing to worry about yeah okay so Michael Parker Pearson by the way if you're interested in this work uh, he's the main the main sort of expert the archaeologist and expert on Stonehenge that has done a lot of the backbreaking work to kind of get us to this common area or, or common theory as to what Stonehenge was all about they are countless. I have been here, like I said, when a lady told me it was an instrument. One lady told me that if you hit the different stones with prongs, it will make different sounds, See perfectly reasonable. They're made of different stuff. They're different sizes. Doesn't make it an instrument, but I, I don't know. That's the truth, maybe it is. Another lady on a private tour, in a Circle Stonehenge, said to me, it's a projection place. And listen, you stand here, I'm gonna do some noise. I'm gonna make some some acoustic sounds. It's gonna bounce off that stone and that stone and come back to you. It, it, it didn't. It was miserably embarrassing i i felt so bad for this lady because she did she did a lot of warming up a lot of yoga stretches started making all sorts of sounds and nothing happened um i tried to console her by telling her the stones have worn over thousands of years it's probably why it didn't work but she was soul crushed left hand side by the way i am very happy to see that they are finally building a real fence because that is an ammunition dump that is where they store all sorts of artillery um, and as long as I've known, it's had a rusty chicken wire fence there with the gate wide open and not a soul in sight. And now at least there's like a shinier fence with some barbed wire. So we may be able to keep out some people if they don't. Uh, it just seems very poorly guarded. Well, I'm sure I'm ill-advised and it's very well protected once you get inside. Oh, what a day. What's happening? I can't believe this is October. October's supposed to be miserable. Weather's supposed to have switched by now. I'm happy, I'm happy for you. It it's been put forward and it holds more credit than it should. It's only been named the Slaughterstone. So, when you're at Stonehenge and you see the hillstone, which is clearly marked because they have an arrow to show you where the alignment is, as you're looking over to Stonehenge, you'll see that there's a stone kind of almost buried in the grass. That's the Slaughterstone. It's named so because the Victorians love the story and it has a high iron content. So, there is like orange. Remnants on there, and when it rains, that orange kind of makes it fill up with orange pools. And they lost their mind and said, "This is the Druid sacrificial stone." It's not. It's not the Druids. If you know anything of them, ancient Celtic priests worship nature, really spiritual energy throughout the na- natural system. So they mainly wooded areas, looking at energy through streams and trees. And they did use human sacrifices, but they were very persecuted for it, and hid. they would not be in the middle of an open field exposing themselves to anything it just wouldn't have happened but i could be wrong maybe they change your tradition oh and then aliens of course if you believe that i can't disprove you neither but i have yet to meet one But we can confirm aliens are there amongst us then we can start giving credit where credit's due until then i think we made it
1: talking about bath talking england
2: but first and foremost i just want to let you know that as far as hot springs are concerned we only have one there's just one and it is now locked away inside the roman bath museum i mean a naturally occurring hot spring they have bored a new hole just next door and that is now the Thermae bath spa that opened up in 2006 but as far as a naturally occurring hot spring we just have the one there are some warm springs there are plenty of cold springs but just one hot spring That hot spring is formed when rainwater falls on the Mendip hills, the hills that surround the city of Bath. The rain percolates through the porous rock, works its way about two miles underground, and then gradually it is heated up by geothermal activity. It then breaks the surface at a constant temperature of 46 degrees centigrade, which is 115 Fahrenheit. And that's at 1.1 million litres or 250,000 gallons every day, and has done as long as anyone has ever known. I'll come back to bath in a moment we are now traveling through a village known as pickwick. pickwick literature fans on board that might ring a bell to you because of charles dickens he wrote a series of short stories known as the pickwick papers it is said that charles dickens was staying just outside of pickwick when he was writing the early parts and lent its name to the short stories he was originally a journalist, did short stories, and then went on to write full novels, such as Oliver Twist and The Christmas Carol. But this is a little village of Pickwick. It's nice, it's a nice place. It's got that kind of a um, Cotswolds and Laycock vibe, stone houses, stone roofs, stone dry stone walls. So back to Bath, just the one hot spring. That's how it comes into being. And it's often portrayed, unfortunately, in history books as if you know like before the Romans got to this island we were Neanderthal man or something we had wooden mallets and dragged our knuckles on the floor like that's how they always talk about Britain it's a bit weird and it's not accurate I mean you went to Stonehenge that was two and a half thousand years old when the Romans got here so we must have known a thing or two it is fair however to give credit where credit's due naturally Um, the Romans did a lot to help us develop, you know, they opened up trade, they built the roads, they had the baths, they gave us writing, written language as it were, you know, before the Romans we didn't have any written history, after the Romans we have written history, so there's a lot to be uh, appreciative of, I suppose, but the narrative that we were completely backwards, if not for Roman support, we would never have evolved, is, is not true. The Romans also, they arrive on this island, because this is the first important part for Bath's history as far as the invasion is concerned, in 43 AD, and they are here with a man named Emperor Claudius. Emperor Claudius has a few reasons for wanting to invade the island. Basically, he was not seen as a very strong leader, he was physically not very imposing, and he had not gained a military reputation. So in order to bolster up his home standing, he set his eyes on our small island and sent over 40,000 troops in 43AD, along with elephants and all sorts of crazy stuff to swallow us up. In 10 seconds on the right-hand side, there's going to be a nice view of English countryside. Hopefully the sunlight just makes it all that much nicer. And what the Romans managed to take really was England. England. They tried their luck in Scotland because that was where they reached as they got up to the north but the Scots are rowdy and they refused to give up the land and they fought them pushing the Romans back to some degree. Um, people might be familiar with Mel Gibson portraying Braveheart, no the type of character we're referring to, long beard, long hair, kilts, well the kilts weren't there by the way, they came a few hundred years after Braveheart's time. Um, and the blue paint the blue paint was a lot more extensive it was not in checks it was head to toe and that was all they had no armor no kilts nothing just paint picture having that run towards you the romans left them be. a hundred years after they built hadrian's wall to separate the barbarians as the scots were known by the romans from the roman held england We're now coming into a little village of Box, by the way. Box has got a few railway connections, namely the Box Railway Tunnel will be on the left-hand side in a moment. It was dug through in 1851. It goes through a hill, two miles through a hill. They dug one mile each side and they met in the middle. This is not done with a ball machine. Isambard, King de Brunel was the engineer. It's on the left-hand side in three, in two, one, that tunnel. They They dug that with Irish men, dynamite and horses. That's how that tunnel was blown through. It's a phenomenal achievement. They said it would be impossible, but yet today the Great Western Railway still goes from Paddington to Bristol via that tunnel. Also on the left-hand side in just a moment is a small steam engine in the front garden of a gentleman's house. If you look down and left, down and left, down and left, here it is down and left, down and left, down and left, down and left is there is a traffic calming measure. We have slowed down to look at it, so it must work. So. Now also in this village, uh, two more small connections, there was a man named Robert V. Audrey who lived. Uh, and he was a big train enthusiast, early 1900s. He was so much into trains that he would listen out for the steam engines coming through the Box Railway tunnel. And believed he could tell when a certain train was coming through. Eventually that turned into small stories that in 1946 became Thomas the Tank Engine. So it was published from, yeah, published, 1946 published Thomas the Tank Engine. This is the village that inspired the whole start of it and Reverend Wilbert Hugh Audrey was the author. There is one last thing for this tiny little village, as far as global connection I suppose, something people have heard, and that is a man named Peter Gabriel. He was an original member of Genesis alongside Phil Collins, um, had a solo track called Salisbury Hill, Salisbury Hill was a couple of hills behind the one that will be on our right hand side momentarily. Um, he had a studio here, a recording studio called Real World Studios, and is said to have had a house just outside of um, Box. Now. I'm not sure about the house. I'm not a postman. I've never seen him open the door. I've never delivered the letter. So I can only take on gossip that that's his house. But the rest of what I said is genuine. Did he have the house outside the box? It seems likely considering the name of the tracker that he had a studio there. But I can't for sure say which house was his. Oh, look, the fuel price here, £1.90 per litre for diesel. It's creeping up. It's creeping up and on we go true British spirit, that passive-aggressive nature, we just complain to each other and buy our Mm -hmm. So, the Romans, like I say, they didn't manage to conquer Scotland, they moved through England however fairly easily. There was one big problematic rebellion by a lady named Boudicca, who was queen of the Iceni tribe, and basically Boudicca had inherited land and the properties from her husband, who was king of the Icedite tribe, and that's where the problem was. Her husband had already agreed to give it to Rome when he died, so all his assets would be transferred to Rome, but that's not what he did. He managed to siphon them off to his wife. So the Romans heard about it, of course, they came along, they beat poor Boudicca and abused her daughters. She is not a lady to be toiled with. So she took revenge and burnt down the capital city of what was Roman England, Colchester, to the ground basically, destroyed the whole place. Romans died, lost money, disaster for them, victory for her. She didn't stop there. She also burnt down London and another place called St. Albans, not to the same degree, but three significant locations for Rome destroyed. They, as you could imagine, were livid, and they sought revenge. and I see now, were wrapped up, rounded up and massacred to be honest. Abulica also ended up down that path of losing her life. Um, once they had done that, however, they then needed to think about how they would move forward because 40,000 troops that crossed the channel was roughly 10% of the Roman army. That's a lot. How much more could they possibly offer before they compromise the Roman Empire elsewhere? So they opted to allow the natives to assimilate rather than to have this warpath path the whole way through. And when they stumble across the spring in Bath, they set up a temple which was dedicated to both Sulis, a local Celtic goddess, which was unusual at the time, and Minerva, which was a Roman goddess. If you're more familiar with Greek mythology, Minerva would be Athena. There you go, Robert. Is that close enough? Once they have the temple set up, things do settle down ever so slightly and they're able to then kind of get on with their program of building a bathhouse, which consists of the hot bath, a warm bath, a cold bath, a sauna, a games room, a massage room, you name it, they had it. It was a grand facility. They used this place as relaxation, recuperation facility until they basically left the island which took place 410 AD, that's when the Romans leave because the Roman Empire had grown too large and they had to go back to the more important parts of the empire to protect. So we, as the far-flung elements, were left. Nobody here cared about the waters and going into the baths, was not used. It was made a lot worse by the fact that we had Saxons, which were a Germanic tribe here fighting for territory. And because of that, it's too volatile anyway, even if we did want to go to the baths, to use them. As a result, they fall into disrepair. Eventually, because the water the water continues to flow, they silt over and it is lost to history. Somewhere about 600, 700 A.D. is gone. Not rediscovered again properly until about the 17, early 1700s. That is the end of the Roman section of Bath. Yes, they had the bathhouse, which was discovered in the 1700s, while redoing some new baths, because people continue to use the waters. Eventually, they want to build bathhouses, and while doing the work, they did excavations and uncovered more and more Roman artefacts, and then opened that up as a museum. Now, the 1700s is when Bath begins to climb again into importance. Bath as it stands is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Like Stonehenge, and it is a UNESCO World Heritage site not because of Roman connections, it is because it has one architectural style known as Palladian and it is built in just one stone known as Bath Stone. Because of how well the architecture and stone have been preserved, it is gifted UNESCO World Heritage status. It is the best preserved Georgian city that we have in the country, to be honest. And the 1700s was when it gets underway. The 1700s was a period of newfound wealth. There are a lot of people who are involved in the Industrial Revolution at this point, and they are making more and more money. Bath and Georgian society was all about letting the world know you have arrived. I am wealthy, I am fabulous, I am at the best parties, look at me, I have the most servants, I have the money to buy, you know, or have a portrait done by top artists like Thomas Gainsborough. This is what was going on in Bath. It was never a serious place, it was all about look how life has gone so perfectly for me. I'm at the Queen's party. I have the best dress. I have the best suit. And that is really what it was about. The fact that you had all these wealthy people here meant that you had artists and musicians and actors here to entertain them. The only thing with Bath was that In the early part, it didn't look as good as it currently does because, you know, it was on its way up. It wasn't there yet. And they needed to make it look a lot nicer. And two architects in particular, John Wood the Elder and John Wood the Younger, a father and son team, are largely responsible for creating a blueprint for how Bath could be and creating some of the highlights of Georgian architecture in Bath. And it is once all that stuff is done that it lends itself then to becoming UNESCO World Heritage. Now, I know that Acacia said that she watches the show, but let's see as well, because it might help actually. Bridgerton, people. Has anyone seen Bridgerton? I watch it, so you can put your hand up if you... you, You don't, you're not even convincingly that you've not seen the show, which means you definitely have. You're 100%. 100%. Bridgerton people? Okay, one. Two, a
1: little bit, three,
2: one, no, all right, well watch it, if, if you haven't, watch, watch an episode. Um, I mentioned Bridgerton because it's a Georgian show, and it, it kind of, anyone that's seen it, and if you haven't seen it, you will discover if you do, that there's nobody really that has a job. In the whole program, there's about three people that have a job. Um, and that was true of Georgian society, because this is the elite that are here. The non-elite are here just purely to entertain the elite, and you'll be here during the winter months. The summer months are reserved for London still. This is the place you'll spend the winter. It's largely based around swanning around town in your finery. That is really that what you want to do. That's deep. I also mentioned Bridgerton, by the way, because a bit of that show has been filmed here. So if I mention two houses in Laycock, it's only right that I mention some stuff that are here. For example, the Featherington's house is in Bath. Lady Danbury's house is in Bath. Modiste, the dress shop, is in Bath. The large majority of the street scenes that you see in the show are Bath. Which is why I mention it, because even if you haven't seen it, if you go here and you walk around or I show you Modiste, and then you go back and watch the show, you go, ah, I've seen that, that's it. So I think that it's useful. That's why I mention it. Um, About two months ago, they were filming season three stuff for Bridgerton here they had the whole film crew and the whole, all these crazy stuff up in the air and all these weird angles that they were taking pictures of oh, I don't know why because we have drones now and don't really need a big crane to film something but here is where it was going on if you haven't seen the show or even if you have it doesn't matter but to try and give you an idea of how people looked quite easy men I think the person who looks the best as far as Georgian dress code is concerned like he's nailed the style is Willy Wonka everybody knows what Willy Wonka looks like which is why I mentioned him he has a top hat. He has a velvet jacket. He has a colorful bla- uh, a colorful waistcoat. He has boots. He looks exactly how Georgian men dressed or Mr. Darcy if you prefer in your casual attire. for those that know what Mr. Darcy looks like. Colin Firth Just imagine Colin Firth in a ruffled collar shirt. Mr. Darcy. and knee-high boots. that's essential. Georgian dress code for man. You must have knee-high boots big riding boots to walk around the streets that's how you must dress. Ladies would wear corset dresses that would suck up everything like as much as possible. In the show they don't have it because if that show is supposed to represent the early 1800s by the way. The Georgian period is from 1720 to 1830. It's a very long window there. The earlier part of the Georgian society ladies wore dresses that would stick out quite significantly from the waist and they were held together by a big wooden strut. That's how that shape was kept. That's how ladies look. I often think of a bow Peep in Toy Story. That's kind of how a lady would dress in the early 1700s. If you're trying to make an impression. But I mentioned Austin. Um, did I mention Austin? I think I did. Did I say anything about him? I said Mr. Darcy. Yeah, okay. More a, okay, okay, well, Mr. Darcy. That's what I'm supposed to do. Jane austin she lived here for five years her parents are buried here she's up, she's buried in winchester cathedral which is much closer to stonehenge than we are now it's about 40 minutes from stonehenge but there is a church on our right hand side as we come in right this church just here so we're going down the hill you'll see the church with the bunting out front this is where george and cassandra austin are buried this church this is saint swithin's church Where any austin fans if you're not familiar with austin most people have heard at least in passing Pride and Prejudice, Emma, Persuasion, Northanger Abbey, Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park, Sandingham, is that the half-written one, I think it is. Um, She lived here for about five years with the family. Not a big famous author in her her own time, which is unfortunate, but has gone on to be a very big deal. They have a Jane Austen Centre here every September. They have a Jane Austen Festival, people dressed up in period costume. And Persuasion and Northanger Abbey are set in Bath. So if you've ever read or seen any adaptations like that new Netflix, Persuasion, I've not seen it. But if you've seen that, it's supposed to be Bath and they're representing. Now today, by the way, this city is a city of 100,000 people. doesn't seem like it when you're in the middle because it's somewhat um, condensed. But we are in a big bowl. There are seven hills that surround Bath. Seven hills surround Rome. So some parallels for that first invasion. 15 minutes from the middle you would be in residential uphill i don't think you could realistically go more than 15 minutes before you've left 20 at a stretch the 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 central part of bath and then it just becomes residential the hundred thousand people have managed to squeeze in here because they have all these big hills with terraced houses going up around the city um there are two large universities bath spa university and the university of bath which give this place quite a young vibe i would also mention, whilst I'm on the Young Vibe, that you get quite a lot of Rough Around the Edge's characters. I don't know what the story is with that. I can't put a finger on how or why they are so attractive to here. Or maybe because it's just lovely. <laughs> I don't know. But you do find there are rough sleepers, unfortunately, that you might encounter along the way. And there are just some people that just drink all day long and sit at the bus stop. And just... Just, just don't know, just slur and all this stuff. They're here. I just don't want you to get off the bus and then, like, you know, kind of recoil a bit. Wow. who's he? Um, he's okay. He's okay. But The one guy in particular that I'm thinking of, he's okay. He's got, got a cool kind head. of weird beard. He's got a bit of weird hair. He's fine. He's, dry, he's just off his face. Aside so from that, he's cool. Yeah, it has a young vibe to it. Young vibe to it. Lots of students around. Lots of yeah. the students are working in the retail spaces and service spaces. We're going to go right. The lights turned red, but... That street there, can you see this street that's ahead of us? It's going to be on our left as we bend around. That's a bridge actually. See the road to your left hand side? It's a bridge. This is called the Ponty Bridge. It does not look like a bridge from here, but if you look over your left shoulder as we go forward, you will see that there are arches and it is over the river. This is the river Avon that we're running alongside. River Avon is a bit of a, a, a weird thing in England because we have seven of them and they are not the same river. They are not connected.
1: The river here in
2: Bath is not the river that goes to Stratford on Avon. Avon is from a Celtic word Affon, which quite literally translates to river. So it's just a misinterpretation when being asked about what river it is that its that has been referred to as Affon, documented as River Affon, River River. That's what it means. It's staffed, but we have seven. It's all good. The little park on the left, by the way, that's Parade Gardens. It's reserved mainly for residents and the students. And this little place here that we are now is the drop-off and pick-up location. This is called Bog, B-O-G, Bog Island. Bog, Bog, like a boggy marsh. Bog. It's also Bog because that's the name of a toilet in England. It's what we call toilets, what well, we used to. And knows where that guy is. He's in the middle of two former toilets that became a nightclub, which are now closed down. But the island reverts to its old name, Bog Island. That's what I think of it.
1: We'll be right back. This is sponsored by Pitney Properties. Pitney Properties provides real estate services to buyers and sellers located in and around the Houston area. Having been raised in Texas, LaVon Pitney is incredibly well-versed in the area's housing market and always manages to find her clients those hidden gems that other agents tend to overlook. LaVon's relentless style and integrity allow her to hold client satisfaction at her highest priority – she works hard to make the entire home buying and selling experience as as productive and enjoyable as possible. Whether her clients are first-time buyers or seasoned investors, LaVon works tirelessly to accommodate their needs and exceed their expectations. To learn more about LaVon's real estate services, please don't hesitate to call her today at 713-805-8871, that's 713-805-8871. Or contact bond at sold at pitleyproperties.com.
3: Comes back in again and does that twice every 24 hours. So you get two floods and two ebb tides every day. Five and a half hours and seven hours. So the tide moves on by one hour every day. So high water, just say it was three o'clock today, four o'clock tomorrow, and so on. That's roughly just a rough idea, okay? Now we're going to make our little stop on the pier. Just bear with me for a minute. On the right, we've got the Royal Festival Hall. 1951, that building was built for the Festival of Britain. Frank Sinatra, Shirley Bassey, Pavarotti, they all performed live in the Concert Hall. Now, just to let you know, if you look behind the boat, look through the bridge there, you would have seen the tugs manoeuvring the small ship. So that ship has been moored over there for some years as a floating restaurant, but the company owned it. They went bust during the pandemic, so they're towing it away, it's going to the scrapyard, which is a sad scene. But say the tug is maneuvering the small ship and say once they've gone past, we should get permission to go down. The building with the green roof and the flag in the center is the Savoy Hotel. Very, very nice and very, very expensive. A riverside room in the hotel to the left is 1,300 pounds per night, bed and breakfast. The bridge is Waterloo Bridge. This is better known in London as the Ladies' Bridge, built by ladies during the Second World War. Whilst the men were at war fighting, the girls at home done the construction, and the bridge here was one of them. And I'm sure we must agree, gentlemen, the ladies of London, they made an excellent job. So well done, the girls. Well done. Give them a clap. Well done, the girls. If you want something done properly, leave it to the girls. There we are. On the left-hand side, with a green dome in the centre, Somerset House, built over 200 years ago for the Dukes and Earls of Somerset. For many years, that building stored a birth, death and marriage certificate, taken over by the Coulthard Art Gallery and King's College. On the right, behind the trees, can you see the building with a black screen? Just behind us, the concrete building. That is our National Theatre. Inside the building are three separate halls. The main one is called the Olivier. That is named after Lawrence Olivier, the founder of the building. The building is voted every single year to be the ugliest building on the River Thames, And I think we can agree and say it is a very ugly building. It looks more like a car park, if you ask me. On the left-hand side, the large ship with the yellow funnel That is the Wellington. It used to be part of the New Zealand Navy. Today, a floating livery hall, a drinking club for retired sea captains. Now, you must have been the captain of a ship at sea for more than 20 years to be a member of the floating club on the left. See the archway at the back of the ship there? (coughs) That is called Temple Arch, and that divides London and Westminster. The City of London is in front of us on the left. The City of Westminster is behind us on the left. Not a lot of people know this, but we do have some lovely beaches. Look over on the right, a tropical golden sandy beach. Very, very nice here during the summertime. Stay to the right, we've got a red building with a glass roof and a tower. And that building is called Stamford Wharf. It used to be a cold storage meat warehouse converted into riverside apartments. Now the glass roof at the top is a restaurant that's called the Oxo Tower restaurant, owned by Harvey Nichols, one of the top 10 restaurants in London. Look at the windows in the tower, they spell Oxo, where they made the gravy, the famous stock cube. So made in the building on the right. On the left-hand side, we've got a red brick building. It looks like a church. That is Zion College and Library. That is a school, and they study for the clergyman here in London. (coughs) Excuse me. The building with the green sloping roof is the Old City of London School for Boys. Past members of Parliament and current top MPs, they went to school there before going to Oxford or Cambridge University. And the semi-circular building Unilever House, the famous soap and detergent manufacturer Unilever. The work taking place on the left here is to do with the new sewer system in London. 48 metres under the river, they have bought a new sewer pipe. And that will take away London's sewage from London. So the problem we've got at the moment is you get a lot of rainfall with the population of London increasing all the time. The old Victorian system doesn't cope. And the overflows for the sewer pipe come direct into the river. So they've connected the new pipe to the overflows. So when it overflows, it goes into the new pipe instead of the river. And that is then taken away to be treated down at Becton Sewage Works, about 10 miles ahead of us. Blackfriars Road Bridge and Blackfriars Railway Bridge. Either side of the bridge, there's a, uh, sorry, in between the bridges, sorry, there are red columns. These columns carried the Chatham and Dover Steam Railway. They took the top of the bridge off, it was unsafe. They could never remove them columns it would undermine the foundations of the bridges on either side. Have a look back on the bridge, ladies and gentlemen, and you'll see the roof. That roof up there is solar paneled, and that generates enough power for the station every day. Say, Blackfriars. On the left-hand side, we've got the dome and the golden cross of St Paul's. That is the masterpiece of Sir Christopher Wren. It took 35 years to build. It was completed in 1710. It stands 365 feet tall. That is one foot for every day of the year. Buried in St Paul's, you'll find the tombs of Admiral Lord Nelson, the Duke of Wellington and the architect Sir Christopher Wren. They are all buried there at St Paul's. On the right, with a tall chimney, the Tate Gallery of Modern Arts. The largest modern art gallery in the world, the Tate Modern Art Gallery. This is the Millennium Bridge, or better known as the Wibbly Wobbly Bridge. The bridge was opened on a Saturday morning by the Queen. It was closed the same afternoon by the police. It was unsafe. Too many people on the bridge were falling over, so they had to close it down and re it, renaming it the Wibbly Wobbly Bridge on the River Thames. Through the bridge to the right, we have the Globe Theatre of William Shakespeare. That is the only building to have thatch on the roof since the Great Fire of London. During the summer, you can watch Shakespearean plays. Plays are performed in a traditional way. There's no microphones or stage lighting. It's all done like it used to be done during the time of William Shakespeare. We're now approaching the Southwark Bridge. Now, ladies and gentlemen, look on the bridge. You don't see many cars. You don't see many people. This is due to the bad planning of the approach roads. The main approach roads are hidden so well in the back streets of London, no one can really find it to use it. They say, if you see anybody up there, give them a big wave and a smile because they are probably lost and it might cheer them up. As we go through, look to the right and we have the Anchor Tavern at Bankside. Can you see that over there? That pub is over 300 years old. Mentioned in the diary of Dr. Johnson and Samuel Pepys, a very nice London pub, the Anchor Tavern. Now the tide is coming in as we said. That barge over there is gonna start floating as the tide comes in. All of London's rubbish is put into barges like this, and the tugs tow the barges away. The rubbish is taken downriver to Belvedere in Kent, where they incinerate London's rubbish to generate electricity. Through Cannon Street Bridge, how are we doing so far? Is everyone enjoying it so far? Good. I am trying to speak slowly. Hopefully this is okay for everyone. Everyone... I'm speaking slow enough, yeah? Good. Now, on the right, the old warehouses here have been converted into apartments. Lots of the old buildings are now apartments. In the dockway on the right, there's a pirate ship. Can you see that? Sir Francis Drake's ship, the Golden Hind. Now, Drake was the first Englishman to sell the well. He did so, it took him three years with a crew of 80 men. That ship's not a model, it's a real working ship. It's been around the world twice, a museum today. Then we've got Southwark Cathedral. It dates back to the 14th century. And then look on the left and right of the boat and on the bridge you can see the name, London Bridge. Now I will agree, it's not much to look at but the history is very famous. Five bridges have spanned the river in 2,000 years. The Romans built the first one, they called it Londinium. A medieval bridge for over 500 years had a church, shops and houses. Now the London Bridge that was here before this one, it was sinking into the Thames month. And they took the bridge down and they sold the bridge to an American businessman. He had it shipped out to California, driven across the desert to Lake Havazoo, Arizona, that's correct, where they've rebuilt it in the Arizona desert. I think a few of you might know this. It's very true, isn't it? You've seen, oh, you've actually seen it. Very good. A lot of people don't believe me, so if you could stay on the boat all day, that would be a great help. That would be much appreciated. So the lady has actually seen it, which is always good. On the left, there's a yellow brick building. Can you see that? Old Billingsgate Market. A fish market traded there for over 500 years. They shut the market and they moved it away to a bigger site down on the Isle of Dogs near Canary Wharf. See the tall building behind it? Number 20 Fenchurch Street. Top of the building is called the Sky Garden. The middle of the building is uh, of offices and there's a few apartments. They say the rooftop garden, you can go there completely free. You have to book on the website, Sky Garden London. On the right, we've got a warship, HMS Belfast. She was built 1938 in the Harland Wolff Warshipyard in Belfast. She saw action in the Second World War. She was the flagship for the United Nations in the Korean War. Today, the ship is a museum. You can visit and explore all nine decks of the ship. You go down in the engine room, you go right up on the Captain's Bridge. A very good day out, folks. If you like the wartime history, very, very interesting. Look ahead of the boat and to the left, and we have the Tower of London. The oldest part is in the centre, where you see the four roofs and the flag the Norman Keep or the White Tower, built in the reign of William the Conqueror in 1078. The building has served London as a royal palace, a prison, a royal mint, an observatory, most famously a place of imprisonment, torture. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Look on the river wall, Traitor's Gate. Found guilty of treason to the Crown. Taken through Traitor's Gate. Imprisoned or executed inside the Tower of London. If you go there today, you can see the Crown Jewels on display. They are guarded by Yeoman Wardens, better known as the Beefeaters in Now, in front of the boat, we have Tower Bridge. Now, when we go through Tower Bridge, we'll go down a little bit further, and we'll turn the boat so we're side on to the bridge, okay? And then you'll be able to take a nice picture. Now, as I say, opened 1894 on the 30th of June. The center roadway of the bridge does open like a double-sided drawbridge to allow big shipping into this part of the river. When the river was very busy, the bridge opened on average about 30 times a day. It opens about 15 times a week this time of year. Wave to the people. If they wave back, it will bring you five years of good luck. So do wave to people on the bridge. Is anyone waving back? Good. There's your five years of good luck. There we go. Best time to see the bridge is when they light it up see the bridge of at night time, it really is a beautiful sight. Well, now ladies and gentlemen, as I say, say for example we were on a tall boat and we needed them to open the bridge, we have to ring up the bridge 24 hours in advance and they lift the bridge free. But you do need a big enough boat and 24 hours notice. Okay. Now ladies and gentlemen, if you uh, want to visit the bridge, it is open as a museum, the Tower Bridge Experience. Look on the right and ahead of us, and we have the Kiss a luxury super yacht. The man who owns this, a man called Sadiq Khan, he's the owner of Fulham Football Club and also the Jacksonville Jaguars. I was just about to say that. Meet <laughs> me to it. So you're Bronco, is it? Excellent. How was the... Did you actually go? Was it good, yeah? Excellent. Wembley's a great venue. It's really, very really good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, we go to watch the football there. But, uh, say, we uh, We do uh, follow these clubs. Say, Fulham Football Club. They, they actually drew yesterday. So a pretty bad day for him. He's, two of his teams didn't win. So he's probably drowning his sorrows tonight. But then again, he's still got all of his billions of pounds, so he's not that worried about it. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the view. Look to our left, and what a great picture we have of Tower Bridge. It really is a lovely picture. Now ladies and gentlemen, as we've turned the boat round, I'd like to just mention, as we stand up and take pictures, to be very careful, sometimes the boat might rock and roll a little bit, and we don't want to see anyone fall over. So if you can understand me, when you're taking your picture, go back to your seat and remain there as we go to the pier. Now information about your tickets, now if you've got a ticket that takes you to in Marina, there's some lovely yachts, and tall-masted boats moored at St. Catherine's Dock. On the right-hand side of the boat, we have Butler's Wharf. This building is an old tea wharf. The Cutty Sark, which used to sell from China and Salong, she delivered tea clippings here to the right at Butler's Wharf. The lower floors of Butler's Wharf today are restaurants and bars. There's some very nice places to eat and drink here. Now, stay to the right-hand side, you'll see there's an entrance here. It's got a bridge going across. This is called St. Saviour's Dock, or Dockhead and Burns. This is where they filmed the musical on the large twist. This is where Fagan had his den of pin boy thieves. Where Bill Sykes was hung from the warehouse roof. On the low side, the water drains out, it leaves a muddy creek. That's where Fagin dropped the jewels in the sticky mud at the end of the film in Oliver. The blue glass—sorry, uh, the blue—the green glass buildings on the left-hand side. These are the newest apartments in this part of the river. Like other modern buildings, they are designed with a theme. These buildings are designed to look like something. Now I honestly believe you can sit and look at this all day long, you'll never guess in a million years what that's meant to be. Most people say a ship or a boat, that's what you'd think being by a river, but in fact these buildings are French marching soldiers. Now what this man was on at the time I'm really not too sure, but it must have been pretty strong. The berets are the sloped roof. Can you see that on the first two? The soldier's hats. The one at the end looks more like a control tower at an airport. But say so you do need a very wide imagination or to be on heavy medication, one or the other. We can't all be wrong, surely not. And say so if you are from France, this is not a joke. This is actually true. So I'm not being funny or anything like that. It's, it's actually true. Uh, To the left, we have the entrance to what was the London Dock. The cargo that went through there was alcohol and tobacco. Now, they do say the smell alone was enough to keep everybody happy working in the London Docks. That was the place to work. Then, we've got a set of steps that lead down onto the foreshore on the left. Can you see them? They are the whopping old steps and the foreshore at low tide is called execution dock. Now, years ago, if you were found guilty of piracy, you were taken down onto the foreshore at low tide. They would chain the pirates to wooden spikes. They would leave them there for the tide to rise. They would drown the pirates on the banks of the river. Once the pirates were pronounced dead, they would hang the bodies of the pirates in steel cages acting as a warning to a would-be pirate. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the Thames River Police were set up in 1798 to combat all the piracy that was rife. Something like 30% of London's cargo went missing. They formed the Thames River Police. There's a pub on the right called The Angel at Roverhive, a very nice riverside pub. One of the things I do like about that pub is the view of Tower Bridge. If you can see behind you, a lovely view of Tower Bridge. You can sit there and take a nice picture. The right, we've got a church. This is called St. Mary's in Rotherhithe. Buried in this church is Captain Christopher Jones. He was the captain of the Mayflower, the ship that went to America in 1620. Now, the ship was built on the right. It was crewed by local men and it's sound to America with the Pilgrim Fathers. There's a pub over on the right. It's called the Mayflower. And on the roof of the pub, there is a weather vane, a bronze model to the ship itself. So a very nice riverside pub, the old Mayflower. On the left in front of the boat, we have a building called New Crane Wharf and Metropolitan Wharf. Now, have a look at the word wolf, W-H-A-R-F. Look at each letter in the word, and the letters stand for warehouse at riverfront. A warehouse is a warehouse at riverfront, that's what a wolf is. Follow the line of the buildings along on our left-hand side, and you'll come to a white building by the willow tree. And this is the Prospect of Whitby. Now, this pub dates back to 1520. It gets its name from a coal ship. It delivered coal to London from Whitby in Yorkshire. Now, the crew, they used the pub on their journeys into London. One evening on their return trip, the crew and the ship were lost in a violent storm. So, in memory of the ship and the crew, they renamed the pub here in London to The Prospect of Whitby. And that is the oldest pub on the banks of the River. Now, folks, look down in front of the boat on the left. This area is called Shadwell. Inland on the left, you've got places like Whitechapel, where the Jack the Ripper murders took place in 1888. Bethnal Green, where Ronnie and Reggie Cray live, the famous gangsters of the East End. Limehouse in front of the boat, Bow, Stepney, these are all parts of the old east end of London, away to the left. Now folks, look ahead of us on the left, there's a funny looking building, it looks a bit like Legoland. The reason it looks like that is so that every apartment has a view of the river and its own balcony. And what that does, it makes a maximum profit on every single apartment inside. To have the view and the balcony will increase the value of each individual one. So, a very clever idea. Stay to the left and you've got a funny-looking building, or not just, sorry, past the funny-looking building, one with the arches along the front. That is called Free Trade Wall. Now, during the Plague of London, 1665, foreign countries refused to come to London in fear of catching the deadly plague. The only country that continued to trade were the Dutch. And the Dutch ships came as far as this point with important supplies and medicine for the London people. Now, in thanks to the Dutch sailors, they were given barrels of brandy and barrels of pork. So on the way back, they could have a good old drink. That would encourage them to come back again. And that is where you get the saying of Dutch courage. If you're having a few drinks, a little bit of Dutch courage. Now, if you look over to the right, a little example to what we were saying about that orange building. So Globe Wharf there is a square building. So anything on the riverfront there would set you back about a million pounds. The same apartment in the same building with the same address, but looking out onto the road would be a lot cheaper. So to give everyone the view like they did back there was uh, a clever idea. Surprisingly, there isn't more buildings looking like that. In front of the boat on the left, we've got a bridge going over an entrance. This is called Limehouse Marina. This is the entrance to the canal network of England. There are over 2,000 miles of canal in this country. It's all accessible via the entrance of Limehouse over on the left-hand side. So you can go all over, all over England on a canal boat. So if you get a nice little boat, some friends and family, some nice weather can be a nice thing too. Limehouse, the area to the left, it comes from, the name comes from, all the lime kilns in the area are making bricks. This is where all the lime kilns were set up to make all the bricks to rebuild London after the Great Fire. Now, if we follow the line of the buildings down here, where that wooden jetty is, look how the buildings are built. They're built tall and narrow. Now, years ago, what they used to do is they used to tax you on the width of your building. So they started to build them tall and narrow to defeat the law. As the building got taller, it needed more windows, and they invented window tax. And then what people were doing, brick up unnecessary windows for a cheaper tax. That is where you get the saying of daylight robbery. People would have to brick their windows up for a cheaper tax. The Grapes Pub on the left, made famous by Charles Dickens. He lived and he wrote our mutual friend, a famous Dickens book, The Grapes on the Left. In front of the boat, we've got Canary Wharf, the central tower with the pyramid top, number one, Canada Square. HSBC, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, all the big banks and financial building is there. Built on the site of the East India, West India and Millwall docks. So where you see all them buildings, that was a busy docklands area. But due to containerisation, we don't get any ships in this part of the river. Go downriver, past Greenwich, past the Thames flood barrier, and then you'll start to see a few ships there. When you get a bit further down river, places like Dagenham, Purfleet, Tilbury, Gravesend, there's lots of shipping around there. But in this part of the river, the ships don't come this far. The, the water isn't deep enough here for the big ships to today.